Good morning, church family. It is cool to look out upon you guys. Two weeks I've been gone and uh, asked my wife, I cried myself to sleep every night because I didn't see you guys. Maybe. And, but man, it is such a cool thing to be here. You know, I've been here pretty much every Sunday for 30 some years and one Sunday runs into another, runs into another, runs into another, and it's easy to take for granted what an incredible blessing it is to be a part of a great church family, to worship together, to have, to have a team of musicians lead us into the presence of God, all of that kind of stuff. So I just want to say, glory to God, thanks for this church and all he's doing in us, and I am super glad to be back. My wife, however, doesn't like you guys as much as I do. <laughs> And so uh, she has gone off to Texas to be with grandkids, so um, she's still away and doing that. We are, this is the busiest summer in the history of our lives, and, um, but I'm glad to be here and to jump into the Word of God with you. I want to start with a question. This is an audience participation, hand, raise your hand kind of thing. Raise your hand if you can competently drive a stick shift automobile. Okay, put your hands down. That's more than I thought. Raise your hand if you are under 30 years old and you can drive a stick shift automobile. Oh, oh my. Wow. I, just Katie. Katie, she's sitting in the back. She's, she won't even drive an automatic. Katie is a race car driver. So... Um, uh, do you remember the first time you drove a stick? Yeah, right? Just, I don't mean to give you bad dreams tonight or anything, but I remember the first time I drove a stick. It was, I had a best friend growing up in high school, and I had just turned 16, just got my license. And I had grown up riding dirt bikes, and so I understood the concept of a clutch and shifting and all of that kind of stuff, right? But nobody had ever taught me to drive a stick shift car. And so my buddy had a 1968 Volkswagen Bug. I should probably say, how many of you had a 1960? We'd have a bunch of hands, right? Um, everybody and their mother had a 1968 Volkswagen Bug in those days. If you are old enough to know, you'll remember that back in those days, the speed limit was 55, which was good because the bugs could reach a top end of about 53 or 54, right? And um, anyway, uh, my friend and I went to a memorial service, a funeral for his girlfriend's father who had died. And so I rode with him to the funeral and we were there to just you know mourn and be uh, supportive. And of course, uh, he went to sort of sit with his girlfriend and comfort her and all of that kind of stuff. And she was struggling at her father's funeral. And she said, I really want you to come with me in the limousine to the you know, event that we're going to from here. And so he just turned and looked at me and tossed me his keys and said, take my car home. I said, cool, I've been wanting to learn to drive a stick. So, so I get in his car and I'm like, okay, I, I think I know how to do this. I probably know how to do this. So I start the engine and, and I, I stall the car. And then I, I restart the engine and I stall the car again. And I, I start the engine back up two feet, stall the car again, go, go through this whole thing, right? I'm like, my neck's starting to hurt. The car's doing this. 
And, and I'm telling you, I made the transmission of that car make sounds you have never heard before. It was a thing of beauty. I left pieces of that transmission all over the street as we drove, and, and I just took it to his house and parked it and said, you know, I'm not going to tell him that I didn't know what I was doing, and we'll just see if the transmission survives. And he never said anything to me. Who knows, maybe he's watching this right now and going, I, I had to put a transmission in that car, and I wondered why. Well, now he knows. Um, I tell you that because we've been talking in the book of Romans, we've been talking about the gospel according to the book of Romans, and we've talked a lot about um, the problems, the good news and the bad news. We'll talk about that in a second. But for a lot of us, the Christian life is a little bit like that, where somebody just tossed you the keys and said, go, and you've been sitting there trying to figure out how do I get this thing in gear? How do I make this thing work? And for a lot of us, you know, we, we, we prayed a prayer, we, we accepted Jesus, asked him to come into our hearts, we, we did all of that, and, and that's when we were tossed the keys to the Christian life, and it's up to us to sort of figure out how to live that life. And a lot of us are having trouble figuring it out. So we got the keys. We know how to start the engine. We know it can be done because we've seen people who seem to be doing it. Um, but all we have seen is some people who seem to be doing it, but a whole lot of other people who have either stalled out in the middle of the road, crashed on the freeway, um, or even just run out of gas. And, and, and we've watched it, and some of us are nodding our heads because we can relate to feeling like, you know, I got off to a good start with Jesus, but then I sort of stalled out. I sort of ran out of gas, and I feel like nobody sort of taught me anything. They just said, accept Jesus, and life will be great, but it turned out life wasn't so great, and I didn't know exactly what to do about that. And so I want us to think, as we think about the gospel and what um, the gospel is, particularly in the book of Romans, I want us to think a little bit about what does it take to really make this Christian life go? Um, we've talked a lot about the fact that we need Jesus and how we can accept Jesus and all that kind of stuff, but we hear about people all the time who um, are stalled out, in their Christianity, and, and a lot of people, it's not that they're not sincere, it's not that they didn't have some experience with God, it's that they're just finding it really tough to sort of drive this thing. And we, we hear about it all the time, people who were once really excited about Jesus, but now they don't want anything to do with him. Or, or people who, the thing you always hear about now is, is people who are deconstructing their faith. They, they were... They were sort of taught some version of Christianity that no longer makes sense to them and they're sort of tearing it apart and rebuilding their spirituality in their own way and trying to figure it out. People who believed all sorts of promises that they heard from some preacher about if you just have enough faith, this will happen and that will happen, but this and that didn't happen and now they've lost faith not in the preacher who made the false promises, but in God who those promises were attributed to and so they've distanced themselves and a lot of people have just gone gotten out of the car, and decided to walk. And that's a reality. I mean, coming into a personal relationship with Jesus is the most life-changing event that could ever happen to a person, right? Well, during our talk about the gospel according to Romans, 
we have seen that that doesn't always work that way. We talked about bad news, right? We've just got to recap this for you every time. We're talking about a series on the good news, but it begins with the bad news. And the bad news is basically that people are completely lost in their sin. And he takes the first two or three chapters of Romans explaining that not just irreligious people, but uh, religious people, not just the obvious wrongdoers, the people who are wearing the black hats around society, not just the people who vote differently than us. Everybody hear that? Um, But all of us are in deep trouble because of the sin in our lives. Apart from Christ, we're in serious trouble. Jew and Gentile alike, Paul tells us. Religious people and irreligious people. Uh, Rule followers and rule breakers. Men and women and children and Republicans and Democrats and CNN watchers and Fox News watchers and... It says in Romans that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And that's the bad news. That is a problem because the wages of sin is death. And I'm not spending a lot of time on this, but if you haven't been here for those early messages in this series, hey, check it out on the website, go to our YouTube channel and listen to those early messages where we talk about the real problem of sin because until we deal with the fact that we do have a problem with sin, why in the world would we be looking for a savior? And so it begins with bad news, but there is good news too. After it says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Paul also writes in Romans that though the wages of sin are death, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. That was your, that was your moment. I, I need flags. I need some kind of, this is when you're supposed to wake up and agree with me, okay? So let me say this again. I'm going to pretend I have a flag, so just watch for the flags to go up. Uh, the scripture says the wages of sin is death, but it also says the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Okay. Thank you. Hey, Garrett, put in the budget. We're going to get some flags, okay? Um, Jesus paid the price for our sin. That's the truth. Jesus gained the victory over death when he came out of that tomb on the third day. And we can be made new in Christ. That's the good news. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, new things have come. We've quoted that verse almost every week for the last three months. It's so true. And that's basically the first six chapters of Romans. See, you think my sermons are long, but I just gave you six chapters of Romans right there. The bad news is overcome by the good news, and it all happens by grace, through faith, and it's not our doing. It's the free gift of God. But then we turn from chapter 6 to chapter 7 of Romans, and we hear Paul say that even though all of this is true, we still struggle with the pull of the flesh that wants us to go our own way, serve ourselves, do what sounds good to us, and ignore God. And so we all deal with this, and even Paul, the great apostle, calls himself a wretched man because he says, the things I wish to do, I do not do, and the things I do not wish to do, I do do and we all go amen Amen. me too right and so even though we've been given the keys we find ourselves still grinding the gears 
We find ourselves still running off the road. We find ourselves still running out of gas. But after we finish chapter seven, we get to my favorite chapter in the whole Bible. You know, they say you're not supposed to have favorite chapters. It's all the word of God. It's like you don't have favorite children. I have favorite children. I don't know. I just, I'll just tell you that uh, Garrett's in the top three. I'll tell you that. But, but I actually have favorite chapter of scripture. It's been my favorite chapter of scripture for a very long time because I'm a theologian at heart and I love to dive into deep doctrine and I love to hear how this all works. And when you dive into Romans chapter eight, you swim in the deep end of truth and it's powerful stuff. And so I was telling somebody today, I would like to preach a 22-week series on Romans chapter 8, but instead, we're just going to spend a couple weeks here, so hurry up and listen fast, okay? Here's how this goes. In, in Romans chapter 8, it begins, and if you have your Bibles, you're going to want to open there, because that's where we're going to spend our time today. Uh, but in Romans chapter 8, it begins with these incredible words, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And we talked about this a couple weeks ago. By the way, praise God for Pastor Byron and Pastor Dave and their ministry. <laughs> Filling in while I was gone. Um, and you were thinking, oh, finally we're out of Romans. But then I came back. So here we go. Um, and I left you guys on that note. Uh, Romans chapter 8, verse 1. Therefore now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And when I came to faith in Christ, I was justified in that moment. That's what it means. It means that when you come to Christ, you are justified, you are cleansed, you are born again, you have new life in Jesus. But that doesn't mean, we just saw in chapter seven, that I won't struggle with the flesh. Although I, I stumble, although I sometimes take two steps forward followed by three steps back, I still am not under condemnation when I am under the blood of Christ. Isn't that good? Uh, it's true. If I am in Christ, I am not condemned. Why? That's where chapter uh, 8, verse 2 picks up. So let's just start in verse 1. Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. There are two different laws at work in the spiritual realm in our lives in this context. There is the law of sin and death, which he has talked about for six chapters. It's what I just recapped about how we all are lost in our sin and that sin leads to death because the wages of sin is death. That's why God so graciously spoke to Adam and Eve when he put them in the garden and said, listen, do not eat the forbidden fruit. It was not because God is some kind of control freak. It is not because God wanted to make sure they didn't have anything good in their lives. It was because God understood that the wages of sin is death. And he was trying to protect them from that. So that's the law of sin and death. There's also the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And one of those laws can overcome the other one. Uh, I just uh, took a trip last uh, couple of weeks. Uh, Christy and I went down to Long Beach Airport. We, we boarded a big plane. It was a Boeing 737. Not the biggest plane you can find, but not a little puddle jumper. A big jumbo jet, right? A Boeing 737. And I thought to myself, 
how come this thing stays in the air? Like, I know some of you guys are like physics people and you're like, it's so simple. And I slept through physics in college, so I don't know. I looked it up. You know how much that plane weighs with the weight of the plane and the people and the fuel? 175,000 pounds. Oh, 175,000 pound metal object flies through the air and does not fall to the ground. Now, I don't want to freak anybody out who's got a trip coming, but I, I can't explain that. I, I don't know how that works because the law of gravity pulls everything that is in the Earth's atmosphere back toward the Earth, right? But there is at work here another law. It is called the law of lift. Now, do me a favor, physics people. Don't hold me to this. If, you, if what I'm saying doesn't make any sense, um, email Garrett and let him know. I don't need to know, but, but, but there's the law of lift. Don't ask me to explain it because I don't actually understand it. But somehow, God has created certain laws of thermodynamics and aerodynamics, and I don't even know the definition of those words, but let's just keep going. The, those laws that God has created that make it possible for a 175,000 pound metal object to safely fly at 30,000 feet without falling to the ground. And I'm confident that it's gonna work. I don't understand these laws, but I know that the law of lift in the case of an airplane overcomes the law of gravity. And I'm so sure of it that I regularly pay big money to go sit inside one of those flying metal tubes and I expect to land safe and alive in another place. And so far, it has always worked. The law of lift overcomes the law of gravity. Well, the same principle is at work in the spiritual realm. The law of sin and death is simple. The wages of sin is death. It's put very clearly. Put it another way. If someone sins, someone has to die. That's the law. That's the way that the universe was designed. It's a law that God put into effect from the very beginning. It's a law that he told people about from the very beginning. It's a law that he has given us ways to obey. And it is a law that leads to death if we break it. But there's another law at work too. It's called the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. And the law of the spirit of life overcomes the law of sin and death by grace through faith to all who put their trust in Jesus. And this is where the Holy Spirit enters the equation. And just the mention of the Holy Spirit makes some of you nervous. And especially if maybe this is your first time visiting, you're like, oh, is this one of them Holy Spirit churches? The answer is yes. See, God exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you're gonna worship the one true God, you are gonna worship the Father, worship the Son, and worship the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is absolutely essential to the salvation story. He is absolutely essential to the gospel message. But it just seems like any discussion of the Holy Spirit is, uh, it just sends people to their camps, right? And, and if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that, that there are some churches where if you were to say, um, hey, pastor, tell me about the Holy Spirit, he would put his hand on your shoulder and he would say, now, son, we're Baptists. 
we don't really talk about the Holy Spirit here. And there are other churches where if you went to the pastor and said, hey, can you tell me something about the Holy Spirit? He would answer you in a language that no one on earth understands, right? And, and there's these extremes and everybody sort of picks their camp and they're sort of afraid to talk about the Holy Spirit. The problem is the Bible talks about the Holy Spirit all the time. The problem is the Holy Spirit is essential to our life in Christ. The problem is that apart from the Holy Spirit, we have no salvation. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we have no hope. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we have no power. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we have no spiritual gifts. Apart from the Holy Spirit, we have no way to live. And so... Here in Romans, Paul says, you know what? Let's talk about the power of the Holy Spirit for the Christian life. This is what makes our Christianity go. And you'll notice that when I talk about the Holy Spirit, I talk about him, not it. The Holy Spirit is not an it. So often I hear people go, yes, I'm praying that the Holy Spirit will fill my heart and that it will give me, well, the Holy Spirit is not in it, the Holy Spirit is a he. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is God. And so we pray to the Holy Spirit. We're empowered by the Holy Spirit. We are strengthened by the Holy Spirit. We have a personal relationship with the Holy Spirit if we're Christians. But I'm going to warn you, I already told you, Romans chapter 8 to me is like theological Disneyland, and I just want to spend all this time here and get into all these details, and I'm making the decision not to do that for the purpose of this series. We are, when we get to Romans 8 in the men's Bible study and the women's Bible study on Saturday mornings, we're going to go deeper into some of this kind of stuff, but I, I do want you to know that this week, next week, maybe even the week after that, the messages are going to feel... Um, Less preachy and more teachy. We're, we, we don't have a choice, not that I would make another choice, but we don't have a choice. Paul goes into the deep water of spiritual truth. We talk about salvation. What does it mean to be saved? How secure is our salvation? What makes our salvation secure? Are we really able to be sure that because I prayed a prayer at VBS when I was nine years old that I will get to heaven when I'm 99 years old. Like, how does all that work? Paul begins to lay that out in Romans chapter eight, and we're gonna dig, and we're gonna peel back some layers, and so you're gonna get some sort of teachy stuff, and you're gonna feel a little bit the next couple of weeks, uh, and maybe even today, like, uh, like you're sitting in a college class and you need to be taking notes. Um, uh, that's what we have to do if we're gonna understand this. And, and frankly, it frustrates me to no end that so many Christians who've been Christians a long time and have been sitting under the, te- the teaching of good pastors and good churches and all that kind of stuff, really can't articulate to any degree, how does my salvation work? And am I really sure I even have it? And, and I'm praying that when we get to the end of this series, by the way, I'm completely off my notes, guys, so I don't know what I'm gonna, when I'm gonna stop or what I'm gonna say, but, but well, I'm praying that when we get to the end of this series, that there will be a sense that each of us is undergirded with a sense of power and confidence and hope that we can actually live out this Christian life, that we can actually drive this car that God threw us the keys to for some of us many, many decades ago. 
And we're still trying to figure out how to drive this car. So to do that, we had to put our thinking caps on a little bit. And we're not going to take the time to do an exhaustive study of the Holy Spirit. But we will say this. There is no victory over the law of sin and death apart from the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we're not going to do this deep dive into the Holy Spirit's life right now. We'll maybe do that another time. But I do want us to think about his role in our justification and his role in our sanctification. Now, I told you it's starting to feel a little bit like a college class. Hang in there. We're going to define hard terms. We've already talked about these terms a little bit, but I'm just going to give you, you don't have to write this down. I'm just going to give you a general working definition. When I use the word justification, what am I saying? Justification definition is this, a legal standing. Justification is a legal term. It describes your legal standing in which a person is deemed to be not guilty and is therefore free from the punishment that comes with a guilty verdict for the crime of sin. Justification means that when I come to Jesus as a guilty sinner, his blood cleanses me. When I accept his grace and faith by faith in my life, his blood cleanses me, washes me clean. Not that I never sinned, but I become treated as one who never sinned. God looks upon my life through the lens of his son. And I am justified in the eyes of God, deemed not guilty. It's a legal standing that I have. And the Holy Spirit is key to our justification. The other big word I just used is sanctification. And let me give you a working definition of that. Sanctification is the process of being set apart for God and molded into the image of Christ. So at the moment that you come to Christ, you are justified. At the moment that you accept his free gift of salvation, at the moment that you allow him to be the Lord of your life, your justification takes place. And that is the moment that your sanctification begins. Justification is a one-time thing that happens in the moment of your salvation. And the sanctification continues from that point on until you get to heaven. And I'm not sure about this. I can't give you chapter and verse. I'm not positive, but my theological mind tells me this, that sanctification probably continues after you're in heaven too, because you're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be God. You'll be like him, the scripture says. There won't be any more pull of the flesh. There won't be any more sin. There won't be any more sickness. There won't be any more, all of that stuff. But still, we are not going to become the infinite God of the universe, right? That's Mormon theology. That's not what the scripture teaches. However, sanctification begins at the point of your salvation and goes on for as far as I can see. Now, those are those terms and we're gonna be talking about them because you see there's a difference between receiving the Holy Spirit which happens at the point of your justification and being filled with the Holy Spirit, which is an ongoing process that happens for Christians on a regular and consistent basis during the process of sanctification for the rest of your life. All right, elbow the person next to you and wake them up, okay? That's what we need to understand. So I want us to see this. We could, I could do so many passages on this, but I'm gonna show you two passages in the same uh, book that teach us this. Go to the book of Ephesians. So it's just a little bit to the right of Romans. You'll find Galatians and then Ephesians. And I want you to go to Ephesians chapter one and we're gonna see both of these things happening. In Ephesians chapter one, beginning in verse 13, and again, 
don't have time to unpack this whole passage, but just want to show you examples of how the scripture teaches this. Ephesians 1.13, in him, Jesus, you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with the view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory." He says, when you, when you heard the gospel and believed it because God gave you the gift of faith to believe, when you exercise the faith that God gives you and you put your faith in Jesus Christ, that is the moment of your justification. And Paul says that the moment of your justification, you receive the Holy Spirit and you are sealed in him for the moment of uh, your inheritance. Your inheritance as a child of God, your spiritual uh, inheritance that you gain by being in relationship with God, an adopted son or daughter of God, is guaranteed by the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life. And you receive the Holy Spirit at the moment that you come into a saving relationship with Jesus. And it says in verse 14, he's given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession to the praise of his glory. So we're sealed in the Holy Spirit. That's receiving the Holy Spirit. Now, same book, same author, same audience, chapter 5. Go to uh, Ephesians chapter five. We're gonna pick it up in verse 15. There's a lot to talk about here, which I'm not gonna talk about, but just to make this point about the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 5.15. Therefore, Paul says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of your time because the days are evil. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Whenever you see a verse that says, understand what the will of the Lord is, highlight whatever comes after it. Because how many times do we go, I just wish I knew God's will. It tells us in scripture what the will of the Lord is in multiple places. Learn those things. So then do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is dissipation, but be filled with the Spirit. He's contrasting or comparing, if you will, the the experience of being drunk on alcohol or high on some drug or something that alters your mind and takes control of you, right? He's saying, when you get drunk, I realize none of you has ever been drunk, but you can look it up. There's Googles about this. Um, that, that if you get drunk with wine, what happens is that the wine takes over. You begin to behave in the way the wine tells you to behave. You, you begin to change the way you operate when you become intoxicated. It's the idea of intoxication. And he's saying instead of being intoxicated with some false uh, outside intoxicant, instead of that, be filled not with wine but with the Holy Spirit. Be intoxicated with the Holy Spirit. Be under the control of the Holy Spirit. Be so filled with the Holy Spirit that the Holy Spirit takes control of your life and you don't behave the way you would have behaved before the Holy Spirit took control, but instead you behave the way the Holy Spirit wants you to behave. That's the picture here, right? So don't get drunk with wine. On the other hand, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And then it goes on, speaking to one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody with your heart to the Lord, always giving thanks for all things in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to God, even the Father, and be subject to one another in the fear of Christ. All um, results of being filled with the Holy Spirit. 
He's saying, if you want to actually walk as a Christian, if you want to actually live this Christian life that we hear so much about being wonderful, it happens when you're filled with the Holy Spirit. This is not the same as receiving the Holy Spirit. In fact, when you read uh, verse 18 in the Greek, it says something like this because of the, of the verb tense. It says, keep on continually being filled with the Spirit. This is an ongoing situation that God is calling us to cooperate with the Holy Spirit, allowing the Spirit uh, to reign in our lives. And the more that we submit our lives to the power of the Holy Spirit, the will of the Holy Spirit, the, the voice of the Holy Spirit, the more we allow the Holy Spirit to control us to that degree, that's what we call being filled with the Spirit. And if you've been a Christian for more than 15 minutes, you already know that that sense of submission to the Holy Spirit tends to go like this in our lives, doesn't it? There, there are times when I'm, I'm just like in lockstep, Lord, what do you want? I live for you. And there are other times I'm like, oh, that's shiny, <laughs> right? And, and, and that sense of being filled with the Holy Spirit, part of that's on us. And so this idea, when he's talking about the, the power of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus, he's talking about the Holy Spirit. The rest of the context of chapter eight in Romans tells us that. So, keep on continuously being filled with the Holy Spirit. It's an ongoing, repetitive experience in the life of a Christian. We decide every day, many times a day, whether or not we're gonna walk by the power of the Holy Spirit by submitting our lives to the will of the Holy Spirit. And that's something we cooperate with God in. It's about obedience and submission and the work of God in our lives. See, the moment that you put your trust in Jesus, you were saved, you were justified, you were given eternal life, but it's an ongoing process of, of sanctification to be filled with the Spirit of God that only comes with willful submission and obedience to God. My friends, it is the power of the Holy Spirit at work in our lives that transitions us from people who are fit only for this fleshly life to people who are fit for heaven. Amen. The sanctification process takes place by the Spirit. Now, go back to Romans 8. Look what Paul says about life in the Spirit. Verse three, for, for what the law could not do, he's been talking about the law for chapters now, what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, in other words, our, our flesh makes the law not work. God did what the law could not do. Sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh as an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, talking about the work of the cross, so that the requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit, who do not walk According, this is Paul's favorite metaphor. This is his metaphor for the Christian life. He calls it a walk. And he pictures us walking with God in our lives. Step by step, God leads, we hold his hand, and we walk with him. And your journey with God, Paul calls a walk. It's your relationship with God. It's the practical details of your life. It's the way you live here on earth. He, he calls it your walk. 
And, and he says that we need to walk as those who are according to the Spirit, or another way to say that is in accord with the Spirit, right? In one accord with the Spirit, we are to walk and not in accord with the flesh, so we had all of chapter seven talking about how difficult it is to live in the flesh, this side of heaven, and how we still stumble and we still struggle and we're still tempted and all that kind of stuff. And he's saying, listen, if you want to overcome that, if you want to actually live this abundant life that the scripture talks so much about, then you're going to have to walk, do your life, live your journey according to the Holy Spirit in lockstep with him, arm in arm. Holy Spirit leads, we go with him. If we walk in the flesh, he goes on to say, we cannot please God. Look at verse five. For those who are according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who are according to the spirit, the things of the spirit. For the mindset on the flesh is death, but the mindset on the spirit is life and peace because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. Remember back in chapter five, he talked about how we were once enemies with God, once hostile toward God, but the salvation, the grace of God changes that and makes us adopted children of God. He's saying you're not an adopted child of God if you're not walking in the spirit. The spirit's presence in your life is that factor that proves your salvation. And so if you're walking in the flesh, not not just that you're still living in the flesh, but if you're walking in accord with the flesh, then you should really step back and ask yourself, hey, am I just kidding myself? Am I actually in a personal relationship with Jesus? Or is my life defined the way it was defined before I ever met him? Now, let me warn you, that's not your question to ask about your next door neighbor or the, the guy who sits across from you at the dinner table. That's the question to ask for yourself. What's the evidence of the Holy Spirit's activity in my life? Do I see him changing me? We'll talk about that a little more in a second. But if we walk in the flesh, we cannot please God. And the Bible says the purpose of life is to be pleasing to God. In fact, those who walk in the flesh are hostile toward God, still his enemies. But if we walk in lockstep with the Spirit, we walk in new life and we experience the peace of God which surpasses understanding. And what's the difference between those who walk in death and those who experience life and peace? It's the presence and the activity of the Spirit of God. That's the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus overcoming the law of sin and death. Now pick it up in verse nine. However, he says, you, speaking to the believers in Rome, you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you, but if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin Yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness, but the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That's the sealing of that promise. That just as Christ was raised, we too shall be raised. If you've truly entered into a saving relationship with Jesus, then you're no longer characterized by the deeds of the flesh. You're more like Paul who says, man, why do I keep stumbling? You know, I'm walking with God, I'm doing this journey with God, but every now and then I stumble. 
That's what Paul is saying. That's what it is to just be this side of heaven, to be human, even though you're a Christian, even though you have the Holy Spirit. But he's saying, if you don't have any evidence of the Holy Spirit, you know what the evidence is? Look at all the steps that God took you even while you were stumbling. Look at the growth that has happened in your life. Look at the peace. Look at the joy. Look at the fruit of the Holy Spirit that is happening in your life. And ask yourself, are these things real for me? Because if they're not real for you, you need to ask yourself, hey, what's going on between me and Jesus? Is this real? But he's saying that if you, although you have the flesh, although there is stumbling, although there are bad days, if you are walking in the spirit, that's evidence of your salvation. It means that the presence and the activity of the spirit of God is a welcome and regular part of your life. It means you're being sanctified by the Holy Spirit. You're being changed from the inside out by the incredible power of the Spirit. It's, you know, we talk about the Holy Spirit and we get all freaked out and makes the hair in the back of our neck stand up. It's not weird. He, the Holy Spirit is not mystical. He's not strange. It's just a question of submission to the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And that's what sets us free. Look at verse 12. So then, brethren... We are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. That's the law of sin and death, right? But if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you have not received, guys, this verse is so great, verse 15. For you have not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. You probably know this if you've, if you've ever read Romans before, heard a pastor, a pastor preach on this, but um, that word Abba shows up a few times in Scripture. Um, in, 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 the, in the Jewish household. Um, you know, your child gets to be about 9, 10, 11 months old. What, you want them to do two things, right? What do you want them to do? Get a job? No. What do you want them to do? You want them to walk and you want them to talk, right? That's what happens right around one year old. If you got to put up with the one-year molars, you might as well get some words and some steps, right? That's the deal. So you want them to walk and talk. And so as, uh, what's the first word most American babies say? Dada, right? It's true, look it up, Google it, it's on the internet, the internet's always right. Um, <laughs> um, seriously, the first word that, a, that American, English-speaking American child usually says is dada because the Ds are easy to pronounce, right? Um, and, and so most little kids call their dad, some version, dada, papa, something like that with, with hard consonants. And, and, and that is an infant's way of addressing his daddy. In Hebrew, it's Abba. The, the, the first word the children say to describe their dad is Abba. And so he says that when we enter by the Holy Spirit into this amazing transformational relationship with God, when we walk not in the flesh but in the Spirit, we get to just go charging into the throne room of heaven, jump up on the lap of the King of kings and Lord of lords and go, Daddy, I'm here. 
It's amazing what the power of the Holy Spirit makes possible for us. Because of the power of the Holy Spirit, we get to call him Abba. We're joint heirs with Jesus. We're adopted as sons and daughters with all the rights and privileges that come with that adoption. And though we may suffer this side of heaven, because of the pull of the flesh and the realities of living in a world that's hostile toward God and his children, we will not suffer in vain and we will not suffer forever. He says for, and let me, let's just pick it up. I, I'm ahead of myself here, but in, in Romans 8 verse 16, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we're children of God. And if children, heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with him that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. That is not God saying your suffering is no big deal. Let me be clear. He's recognizing that your suffering is a really big deal. And he's saying that as big a deal as your suffering is, as big a deal as your grief is, as big a deal as your broken heart is, as big a deal as your injuries or your sicknesses might be, as big a deal as your suffering is, even that level of suffering is not worthy to be compared to the blessings of eternity in heaven. And that happens because of the power of the Holy Spirit. Just as our salvation is a gift from God and it's free, something we could never earn, something we can never deserve. So our sanctification in Christ is the same. It's the work of the Holy Spirit and our only role is to cooperate with him, to, to walk with him, to let him do the life-changing work. You see, there's a type of religion that masquerades as Christianity and it's full of platitudes and it's full of religious rhetoric and it's full of uh, Facebook posts and it's, it's full of superficial religious activities, but it's a cheap counterfeit that is carried out in our own power and that's why it doesn't work. That's why it leaves us wanting more. That's why we're grinding the gears. That's why we're stalled in the middle of the freeway. But there's also the wonderful spirit-filled life that comes to those who have truly submitted their lives to Jesus and accepted life on his terms. There are a lot of people sitting in a lot of church buildings at this very hour who know in their heart of hearts that despite all of their outward appearances, their life is not led, not guided, not controlled by the Spirit of God. It's not about going to church on Sundays. It is not about a list of do's and don'ts that you have to follow because you entered this new religious circle. It is not about any of that. It's about bowing to the work of the Holy Spirit and allowing him the freedom to do the life-changing work that only he can do. So how do you know if your version of Christianity is the real one or the counterfeit one? Well, thanks for asking. Let me tell you. I would say this, don't ask yourself if you're still struggling with the flesh. You are. We all are. He's made that very clear. But ask yourself instead if you see signs 
of your life changing by the power of God. Ask yourself if you see signs of the presence of God that can only be explained by the presence of God. Ask yourself if you experience the fruit of the Holy Spirit in your life. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, all of that. Ask yourself if you see signs in your own life of God doing what only God can do to change your heart by the power of the Holy Spirit. We may still struggle with the flesh. We may, we may still stumble in many ways, but where the Spirit reigns, there is life and peace and transformative power. Our salvation is started by God. It is accomplished by God. It is carried through to the end by God. Our only part is to cooperate with the work of the Spirit and let Him have His way in our lives. So ask yourself this and I'll let you go. What areas of your own life do you really need to surrender to the reign of the Holy Spirit? What are you holding on to? What, what are you telling yourself, you know what? I, I, I may be bitter, but doggone it, I have a right to be bitter. You know, I may be selfish, but you know, if I'm not, then who's gonna look out for me? I, I, I may be holding on to hurt that is just dragging me down. I may be unwilling to trust God, I, but, but you know what? That's my right. I'm just gonna do my thing. And I'm just telling you, if you do your thing, you're going to continue to have the results you've been getting. How about letting the Holy Spirit have control of all of that. How about just today, sometime to right now, how about just saying to God, hey, hey God, I really want the Holy Spirit to rule in my life. In this area, the one I've been holding on to, God, the one I never even talked to you about because I know you know and I know and I know it's kind of awkward, that area, um, the ones that other people don't see, but I know that, but God, I'm gonna give you that area of my life. Um, Jesus didn't pay the price of the cross to give you life so that you could continue to walk according to the flesh and experience the defeat that comes with that. Why not take some time to surrender every area of your life to the power and the will of the Holy Spirit? Keep on continually being filled with the Spirit. Let's bow our heads together. Lord, today we are we are aware, maybe even more than when we walked in here, that you, Holy Spirit, have a plan for our lives and you are at work in our lives and you have a better way than our way. And so God, I just pray for each one of us, every one of us uh, still dealing with the flesh, every one of us still discouraged in the ways that we stumble. Some of us have been trying to do this thing on our own power. It's like trying to fly an airliner without the law of lift. Without you, Holy Spirit, we are utterly stalled out. And so God, I just pray for an openness in each of us to what you want to do in our lives, Spirit of God. That we would be welcoming to your activity in our lives, your presence <clears throat> in the life of every Christian is clear, it's obvious, but your activity has often been thwarted by our will and our clinging to our own rights to do things our way. So today, God, help each one of us to just let go, to toss you the keys back and say, you know what? Maybe it'll be better if you drive, Lord. 
And we'll look forward to what you do to change our lives. Thank you, God, that your Holy Spirit indwells every believer and we can be continuously being filled with him. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. All right.